Today on Foodstuffs. We highlight a campaign that is bringing a unified message about food issues to dinner tables across Canada. And then we tag along as Brian enjoys an authentic, pre-Hispanic Mexican meal topped off by a nice, cool glass of pulque. Don't know what that is? Stick around. Hola, yo soy Alberto. Están escuchando Foodstuffs. Hey there, how are you doing? This is Alberto from Playa del Carmen. This is Foodstuffs. Awesome, thanks man. Welcome to Foodstuffs. A podcast that will satisfy your hunger. For knowledge. <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face. We're shameless. I know. But nonetheless, I am Jessica Walker. And I am Brian Goman. Brian, how was your trip? Oh, it was fantastic. Where did it you go? Mexico. Tell everyone. Yeah. Mexico. You went, Brian went Mexico. to Mexico, everyone. Just to make me jealous. I took a jaunt to Montreal, which I felt great about. Hey, I love Montreal too, but that was pretty <laughs> special going to Mexico and mostly lying on a beach, you lying really, in the sun. And that's that's the truth, is you and your wife Simmel had a crazy summer and it was incredibly well deserved. So I don't mean to detract from that. So how was lying on a beach and not being allowed to do anything? It was really great. Honestly, it was um just shutting off sitting in the sun reading eating eating all drinking, you can eat buffet sleeping <laughs> that was the all you can eat buffet it was you know worse every day basically <laughs> no. the first day you think you would get better at at taking less and less food like taking food you don't want <laughs> you can't do it there was it's one day i managed there. to not eat bacon it's so hard <laughs> to turn down free bacon you can't even when it looks bad it smells bad Tastes bad. Jeez. Gotta have a little You're breaking bit. Breaking my heart. Yeah, I don't feel bad for you. No, no, but uh, no, it was really great, and I uh, got to meet some great people, and did get to eat some really good food. Not so much on the resort, but off of it for sure. Yeah, and which is what we're gonna be discussing today, which I'm very excited about. Yes, but tell me a little bit about Montreal. Montreal was great. I uh, I was there to celebrate my best friend's birthday. Happy birthday, Katie. Um, but I did get to eat while I was there too, go figure. Um, and I went to a little spot that involves picnic baskets and a public park. I don't really want to say more than that. Don't. <laughs> I won't say more than that, but um, you can stay tuned and rest assured we will, we will tell you more in the future. But the main purpose that concerns today's episode is our, my interview with a woman named Diana Bronson, who is the executive director of Food Secure Canada. Um, this ties into the October 19th election. So the Eat, Think, Vote campaign time, as you say, with the federal election is aimed at engaging the public as well as politicians in a discussion centered around four major food issues. These issues reflect the overarching purpose of Food Secure Canada. And perhaps that is the best place to start. So let's let Diana tell us more about Food Secure Canada. Food Secure Canada is a national network of organizations and individuals who strive towards three goals, zero hunger, healthy and safe food, and sustainable food systems. We work within a food sovereignty uh, framework and we have members in all parts of the country. Um, how do those topics that you were just uh, describing kind of feed into this, uh, this initiative or this campaign that you're currently running? Food policy has not really advanced at all in the last uh, four years of uh, government since 2011, even though all political parties in the 2011 election said they were in favor of a national food policy. 
basically very little has happened. So we wanted to find a way to collectively put food on the agenda of the politicians in, uh, in this campaign. And we didn't want them to look at it in its isolated aspects. So not just talking about hunger or not just talking about agriculture or not just talking about obesity and diabetes, but rather talking about all of these issues together. So um, actually the campaign itself was about a year in the preparation with various consultations through our networks of what people thought were the most important issues, what they thought they wanted to put on the table, and we really thought it was important to have a unified message. There are many, many complex issues in the food system, um, but we wanted to uh, zero in on a few critical things that we thought were really, really urgent and that we could actually get rapid policy change on. And what are those four things? Or those particular things? So, <laughs> so the main call is for a national food policy, a policy that would bring together the issues around agriculture, the environment, uh, labor standards, health, bring those under one tent where we can look at them. So we don't have, for example, the Department of Agriculture approving pesticides that would be costly to our health care system. Um, just to cite one example. Um, but a national food policy is, you know, not exactly rolling off the tongue of the average elector. So what we wanted to do was zero in on issues that mattered to people in their everyday lives. So hunger and food insecurity in Canada. There's four million Canadians who are directly affected by food insecurity who live that reality on a daily basis. In northern Canada, as has recently hit the headlines, that's become an urgent crisis, with parts of the north having food insecurity rates as high as 70%. And it's vital that we understand those things better, and it's vital that the Canadian government adopt, as it has already done, but reinvigorate its commitment to um, a right to food, that all Canadians have the right to eat healthy, culturally appropriate diets. And this is a right that 4 million Canadians currently don't have. So we really wanted to draw attention to that. We also wanted to draw attention uh, to farmers and the importance of farmers uh, in providing a food supply. And we decided to zero in on the question of uh, young farmers and new entrants into farming because we've got a real crisis on our hands there too. 55 uh, is the average age of a farmer in Canada. About 80% of those farmers are going to retire in the next 10 years. And we don't have adequate supports for young people who want to go into farming. And many of the young people who want to go into farming are new immigrants who want to go into farming, or just people in their 40s or 50s who are tired of city life and want to go into farming. It's very hard for them to access the land, the capital, and the training that they need to be successful at farming. So we're calling for more federal government supports for, for the next generation of farmers. And really that's vital to our food supply. And the last thing that we're calling for is healthy uh, food for kids in school. We want to see a universal student nutrition program in Canada. Um, one that would provide all kids independent of income with a healthy school meal. And we believe that that should be built upon the patchwork of programs that NGOs and groups are um, facilitating right across the country, sometimes with good provincial support, sometimes with good municipal support, but never with any federal support. And we believe the federal government has a role to play 
and about 20% of the overall costs of a universal school food program should be borne by the federal government. So we're calling for a $1 billion investment over the next five years for healthy school food. Um, and that would be part of not only nourishing kids at school, but teaching them where their food comes from, supporting local and sustainable food markets, uh, increasing food literacy, um, could be paired with school gardens and all kinds of other programs that would um, begin to get our society out of the ignorance that we're currently in about where our food comes from. Um, and so the work of the Food Policy Council would be then kind of addressing all these issues we're discussing um, to what end, I guess? Yeah. Well, it could, it could um, suggest courses of action. It could um, provide a connection between different, different government departments and uh, different agencies. It could play that critical role of defining the goals and the actions upon which we could achieve consensus. So I gave the example of hunger earlier. If we can achieve consensus on that, we will not achieve consensus on GMOs right away. Um, there's many food policy, on trade policy, we will not achieve consensus. I'm not suggesting that we use the Food Policy Council to write trade policy. Um, but there are issues like making sure uh, kids get healthy food in school, like supporting the next generation of farmers, like eliminating hunger in Canada, where we should be able to achieve consensus. And a Food Policy Council could commission the research, broker the meetings, discuss the results, recommend courses of action to the government. And then when the government would be ready to actually do something significant to diminish one of these problems or to improve the situation, there would be already a body of people who would be well informed and who had been engaged in that debate and who could go out and speak in, uh, on its behalf. Policy can no longer be made behind closed doors by government. It's just not the way it's done anymore. And people in Canada care far too much about the food that they are eating and where it comes from to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so back to how this ties into this current campaign of Eat, Think, Vote. You are sitting people down together, different stakeholders, and, and housing these discussions. Is that right? Yeah, and we think it's very important to engage politicians in an election campaign on the issues that matter to us, just as the arts community or the sports community or others should also be engaging politicians on, on the issues that matter to them. Um, so what we're, we've um, done is we've invited people to host a meal with their candidates. And this is happening in dozens of events right across the country. Um, people are gathering with their politicians. It's called Eat, Think, Vote. They're sharing a meal. In some cases, it's a beautiful organic feast. In some cases, it's a bring-your-own-sandwich. In some cases, it's craft dinner, because that's what people are getting at the food bank tonight. Um, but the important thing is, is that uh, it's an opportunity to engage with all political parties on the issues that matter to us. So everywhere across this country, people are discussing those same issues. New farmers, healthy school food, hunger in Canada, and the need for a national food policy. And politicians right across the country are hearing the same message. So whether you're in Perth, Ontario, or uh, Lower North Shore uh, in Quebec, or uh, in the Northwest Territories, you're going to be hearing about the same issues. 
And we're hoping that when those people get elected, our people, people from the food movement, will have relationships with them. They'll be able to say, hey, we remember we invited you to that thing. We're going to hold you to your word. And we're asking those candidates to answer a question. And the, the question is, will they support a national food policy that deals with these issues? And so far, the response has been very good. We're getting a lot of support from candidates. We're getting a lot of candidates turning out um, for these discussions. And what we're seeing is the candidates are learning um, about our issues, and our people are learning that you can actually talk to candidates and elected officials, and that will give them more um, more power going forward to uh, to engage in these issues. You have briefly discussed or gave some examples of how this is looking, um, but can you give a little bit more of a fleshed out version of, of what you've been hearing about the different events that have already happened? Um, well, they've been good, um, the ones that have happened, um, but I'll speak about the one that I attended because I think um, it was so wonderful for me to see that event take place at the Centre Paul Roulin. Because what I saw was um, community members with first-hand knowledge of these issues speak from the heart to politicians about why that issue mattered to them. Um, so we heard from farmers, we heard from someone who ran a school food program, and we heard from um, um, people living with and working with uh, food insecure individuals. And then the politicians got up and every single one had studied up on our issues and what they were going to say. There were no surprises. They knew exactly what they were being invited for. So I am sure that we are going to end up with a, uh, a House of Commons that is better educated on food issues than it was last time. So what is important for people to be thinking about going into this election and what should they be demanding from their local representatives? Well. First of all, they should go to our Eat, Think, Vote website and they should sign the petition and they should share it with all their friends on Facebook and Twitter and whatever other means they use to share that kind of thing. Because we need to let the politicians know that this is not just a couple of organizations talking, it is the Canadian public. And we will deliver those petitions to Ottawa after the election, no matter who's in government. We'll make sure that they get delivered. This is a, a big problem that is within our grasp to solve. There's no reason for inaction on this. So if you believe that, if you share that view, then get online, share the petition, go out, talk to your candidate, and tell them why you care. And read the People's Food Policy if you want to get a, a better sort of overview of these issues. You can look it up online, you can print it off. Uh, it's called Resetting the Table, a People's Food Policy for Canada, and it's, it's our vision for what a food system should look like. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Diana. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Glad yeah. to be uh, on the podcast. Yeah. So that was Diana Bronson, Executive Director of Food Secure Canada. What an awesome talk. Yeah, it was just really interesting. And I mean, she's very articulate um, about their purpose, which I think is really important. So if you want to find more information about them, you can look on our Facebook page. Yeah, you, there's foodsecurecanada.org. If you just want to head straight there um, with the Eat, Think, Vote, you can go to foodsecurecanada.org slash eat, think, vote. Well, I had a nice little visit to Montreal recently. Brian decided to one-up 
10 up, me, and head south to Mexico for some well-deserved rest and relaxation with Simul. While there, you had a chance to speak with the owner of a place called La Perla in the heart of Playa del Carmen. Uh, can you kind of give us a sense of where where you were exactly? Yeah, Playa del Carmen is like an hour outside of uh, Cancun. It's a like a, a resort town, and there's a main strip called Fifth Avenue, which is uh, just pedestrian traffic, and it's a very typical but elongated uh, tourist street with bars and uh, restaurants and lots of little trinkety shops and marts and things like that. And in the far uh, sort of northeast end of that street is this restaurant La Perla, which is serving up some real authentic pre-Hispanic Mexican cuisine. Um, Just to situate it. I know this is probably obvious for a number of people, but just define pre-Hispanic. Just be as it sounds before the Spanish came, um, what the indigenous Mexican people ate, which was mm-hmm. insects, plants, um, whatever was was there. One of those things that is vital to pre-Hispanic Mexican cuisine, Mexican tradition, is a drink called pulque, um, sort of in the same tradition of uh, wine and beer and mead and cider and things like that. Um, Pulque is the millennia old, is millennia the right one? Uh, Centuries old drink of central Mexico. Um, So without further ado, why don't we throw to your interview with... Alberto de Leon, the owner of La Perla restaurant in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, discussing what on earth pulque is. It's very hard uh, for you to get pulque in this area because uh, the, the pulque plant goes only in the center of Mexico. You can, you can find it in Toluca, you can find it in, in Puebla, you can find it in Mexico City, uh, Morelos. All that, all that area, it's where you can find this uh, maguey for the, uh, so you can get the pulque out of, out of it. In this part, all the way down south in the, in the Mexican Republic, it's very, very hard. I think we are the only ones in the whole Riviera Maya that does the, the fresh pulque mm-hmm. uh, because there's no the plant and to get it all the way over here, it's very, very hard. I have to bring it all the way from Mexico City in, in, uh, in the ape airplane. Okay, and because I, I understand also that part of what this makes this drink special is that you can't uh, process it completely and make it completely and then transport it. That transport agitates it. See, we, we, we call that the se golpea el pulque. The translation would be we, you hit the pulque. When it's like a milkshake, for, ex- for example, if you put the milk inside of a blender, you blend it, you're going to have this kind of foam, no? What happens with the pulque? Because the pulque, the pulque has got this uh, kind of like saliva, um, um, uh, like body. Uh, all this, uh, all this uh, saliva will become in like the foam, and then you, everything uh, behind it is gonna be like watery, and that's not the idea to, to right. delay, delay the, the the pulque, you know. And I just had a sip. I'll have another one. And it tastes a bit like beer. It's, it sort of has a, a sweet, weedy kind of taste to it, I think. See, see uh, the weedy flavor, it's because it's, it comes from a green plant, you know, the maguey. Uh, the, the process, it's, um, it's very organic. 
with the tequila and the mezcal, the tequila you use the blue agave, and the, me the mezcal you use the maguey. It's very similar family, but the thing is that in the pineapples, that means they take off all the leaves from the plant, and inside of the plant, it's full of sugars. The, the especially maguey um, for the pulque, it's, it's got more sugars than any other uh, plant, I think. And what they do is that they go in the middle of the plant and then they scratch the plant. Then uh, when the, the plant is, is going to start to kind of like bleed some sugar, we call that aguamiel. Before to be pulque is aguamiel. So they take all this aguamiel and then they put it to fermentation. Once it's fermentation, uh, it's done, it becomes in pulque. And uh, one thing I thought was really interesting about the pulque was um, how tied it, w it is to Mexican history. Um, I don't know how well versed you are on that, but can you tell us a little bit about how the origins of it? Well, the origins, it's, um, it, it comes out of the prehispanic, you know? That's because we say the pulque, it's uh, the beverage of gods, the la bebida de los dioses. Uh, why is that? Because back in the time, all these uh, Aztecs, the, the ones that were living most of it in, in that area of the center of Mexico, uh, it was only allowed to drink for gods, for old people, for pregnant women and children. If you were like a regular guy, like a regular pe person with none of those uh, characteristics, you were killed. Like they used to cut your head off. Why? Because um, the, 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 the pulque, for example, for, for example, for the old people, it's got a lot of proteins. It's got a lot of uh, calcium. It's got a lot of properties that will heal you. Uh, the, 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 the pregnant woman, it, it uh, helps you for, for producing more milk, you know, and the children is very, very, very uh, nutritional stuff inside, you know, and God's well. They're gods <laughs> at the end. <laughs> well, then after when the revolution came over, uh, you know, all these uh, uh, farmers were fighting, you know, to, to make their own uh, independence from all these uh, Spanish colonies that came over, you know. And so uh, for, for feeding themselves, they had on their basic um, basket was pulque, rice and beans. The, it's, it's very, it's very uh, crazy, this idea, you know. The pulque was the first thing they used to have because it was very, it was very nutritional, a lot of proteins. Every, they say the pulque needs one more uh, grade for it to be meat, a piece of meat. Yeah, I, I, I read that. So that's just with the protein content? Yeah, that, yeah everything, the, the protein content. The makeup? And, and the cool thing about it that makes you drunk. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a different kind of it's, it's a different kind of drunk because um, I don't know. For example, if you have some other kind of beverage, you're gonna get drunk and it, sometimes in a bad way, you know. But with right, pulque, yeah. you're gonna have some this kind of um, illusional alcoholic thing like, in your like mind, like hallucination. Yeah, sometimes, oh? sometimes. Yeah. So they talk about that with uh, drinks like absinthe too. Is it sort of similar? Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much similar. That's because they, the the gods used to drink this, so they can have these uh, visions. As I, well, I was sort of looking through the history of it, I, I saw also that it hit a sort of peak of popularity, and then beer sort of 
came over through the Europeans and beer really replaced poke. See, there, there, was a, there was some uh, very interesting uh, history about the, the fighting between pulque and beer. So they, they start to impact, you know, the, the people with beer. But then what, what happened? The, the other side had the pulque, was cheaper, you know, the process was more natural. And so what the, the, the people from the beer started to say that the pulque used to be a, a fermentation with some kind of like, uh, like sheep or cold poop. Yeah. You know? The, the, the idea was something like a bag of human feces that they would see, put see, near see. it. That's, 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 what the, that's what the beer... Is, the like, brewers. The, yeah, the brewers started, started to say, yeah. There's any truth to that? There's any truth this to that. It's just a smear there's, campaign. There's, there's some kind of um, use from this poop because um, it's, it's not that you put the poop inside. Right. The poop goes outside for it to, uh, to keep uh, in a temperature. Okay. For it to to heat, it's not that you put the, the poop inside and then no, it's, yeah. it it keeps like that. It's like if you put something in the freezer, it's gonna get cold. Right uh, back in the time, they they used to have like the the poop for it to keep in a certain temperature for it to do the fermentation. So, but then the those European brewers would say, sort of start these rumors and and start contrast it with, oh, hey, our beer is very very clean and See, everything like that, and that it sort of worked though. See, it, it, it did work. But right now, the people it's starting to understand that they don't do it like they do it back in the time. You know, right now, it's uh, the industry, it's super huge and super big, and, and it's like a monopoly right now. Mm-hmm. And with the pulque, for example, you get it for cheap, it's very natural, gives you a lot of proteins, and you get deep sea in a cool way. And that's something that you brought here to to your restaurant. Like you say, there aren't a lot of places in this part of Mexico where where you can get. Why was it important for you to bring this drink here to La Perla? Okay. Well, actually, um, La Perla concept it was started with the idea of keeping the Mexican roots alive. I I, I thought myself to bring it all the way over here because the need of the people. There's a lot of people that lives here from Hidalgo or all these areas from the center of Mexico that we're living here since 10 years they haven't gone back to their town since 10, 10 years so once you bring this over and they have the first sip they start to cry because you take them back when they were when they were a child you know you take them back to their to their they family just a child and they had their first sip of, of <laughs> pulque yeah 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 it's a very curious and right now uh, I'm the only one that does this and if you want to have like a successful um, restaurant or whatever you do it needs to be something original and so what about pulque do you think that there is a future just beyond just here in your restaurant but is there a, a future for it uh, throughout Mexico beyond just central Mexico like you say where it is mostly See, right now uh, we have this um, group of people, uh, we, we call them hipsters, uh, <laughs> yes. pretty much. They're, uh, the, these people, it's not wrong, these people, it's, it's alright, you know. Uh, they, they try to go back to roots, they try to go back to basics, you know. And what's ba- basics about? Pulque, that's uh, very basic about. And it's natural. There's a lot of vegan people that come over and, and they have some some pulque, you know, instead of beer because they they read the tag and they see what's inside of the beer already, you know. So 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a big uh, market right now, a very interesting market. If you go over to the center, you're gonna find a lot a lot of pulquerias because they're finding out what's going on with the pulque right now. People, it's more interested. They're uh, more informed of what they uh, put inside of their bodies instead of a bottle of vodka. You know, and so yeah, I think there's a big uh, big big market for pulque right now. Great. Alberto, thanks so much. Really uh, appreciate the thank time. You, thank you so much. It's yeah. always my pleasure. And I want to invite all your audience to come over to Playa del Carmen, visit Mexico, and of course visit La Perla if they want to have like a very Mexican culinary experience. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank really that was Brian speaking with Alberto de Leon, the owner of La Perla in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. What a lovely guy. Yeah, he was just fantastic. And after we done, we were done with the interview, we just sort of kept talking. <laughs> kept <laughs> and, drinking. And drinking and honest. eating uh, grasshoppers and, and whatnot. So That's awesome. Uh, the big, uh, big thank you to him and all the staff. It's interesting because you set us up with, uh, we're in the touristy area and all this stuff. And clearly you're a tourist and you wound up mm -hmm. there. But it doesn't sound like the traditional tourist trap. No, sort of it's, at all. like you said, it's for the tourist hipster, yeah. even like even the local hipster. And I think it's so funny to hear that term used in a Earnest? positive, earnestly, earnestly positive sort yeah. of way. Like you hear that word and you think automatically they're making fun. There must be making yeah, fun of no these people. No one says hipster as a compliment ever. He's in, he seems to be describing them as like educated um, people who uh, give give a shit about the past and, and tradition and back to basics. Is that the word he used or you used? Yeah, I think so. And I, I really think that that if you look at, again, we think of a hipster, we think about somebody like trying to be something interesting. And the connotation is that they're not actually interested in it. They're just trying to be interesting. Right. But the, Do the, the, right thing the truth the is cool a lot of hipsters are legitimately interested in these things that are not mainstream, not right in front of you all the time. And they are the people that are keeping a lot of things like this alive. Yeah. So thank you, hipsters. <laughs> I really never thought this would be a conclusion I would be drawing. But yes, that is beautiful. And it's really nice. And um, and kind of growing on all of that, like I'd heard of Eskimoles and I'd heard of you were telling me that you had the occasion to try, what? what's the actual word? I know it as corn truffle. Huruloche. Huidaloche. 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 Uh, I don't know. If we're so sorry if that is completely wrong. Um, but uh, very cool. Like it's a fungus that grows on corn. I've, yeah. I'd heard of all these things um, through Food TV, my my private <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> my favorite thing. Um, but it's cool for you to have tried it. And you got to try fried grasshoppers. That's really dope. Yeah. Um, and so this actually calls back to mind... Uh, the interview that I had done with Jeff Hopgood, my boss, um, a few weeks ago, because he talks a lot about what grows together goes together. And um, here you are talking about all of these ingredients and uh, proteins and all these things that are in that were naturally found there. And, and then here's this drink that comes from this ever-giving plant um, and and it goes with everything too, and and it just sounded like a really neat little place, and uh, and I want to go.
And that's another episode of Foodstuffs. Just a reminder, we're now up on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe. Thanks this week go to Diana Bronson and Hugo Marcherell at Food Secure Canada. Big thanks to Alberto DeLeon at La Perla Restaurant in Playa del Carmen and to Kay Walton from localgringo.com for connecting us. As always, thank you as well to Eric Betlam, Sam Petit, and Ken Stauer at CIUT for the studio space. And I also just want to take a second to thank Hilary Beaumont for connecting me with the Canada Land crew. Uh, Shortcuts was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Hilary. I'm Jessica Walker. I'm Brian Goldman. Thanks for listening to Foodstuffs. Just say something funny I can put at the end. No. No.